first, uh, I really, really, this time it's not a formality, I don't want to disappoint you because I'm a little bit tired of this standard formula of mixing some latest jokes and against liberalism and so on. So what I will do, I will keep to the title, I just warn you, and I will do something maybe even a little bit boring. First, I want to go in detail for the first two-thirds through some possible consequences and also at a more elementary level description, almost journalistic, on what goes on, what are the prospects in all these uh, techno-digital new developments. And then I want to propose at the end some Hegelian models which I think allow us at least to understand what is going on. So it will almost read more like kind of a reader's digest or whatever report on it. There are, as far as I can say, three, at least three different versions of apocalyptism today. Christian fundamentalist, new age and techno-digital, so-called post-human. Apocalyptism. Although they all share the basic notion that humanity is approaching a zero point of radical transmutation, their respective ontologies differ radically. The techno-digital apocalyptism, whose main representative is maybe Ray Kurzweil, remains within the confines of scientific naturalism and identifies at the level of the evolution of human species the contours of its transmutation into post-humans. The New Age apocalyptism gives to this transmutation a spiritualist twist, interpreting it as the shift from one to another mode of cosmi cosmic awareness, usually from the modern dualist mechanistic stance to the stance of holistic immersion, whatever. And finally, Christian fundamentalists read apocalypse in strict biblical terms. They search for and find in contemporary world signs that the final battle between Christ and Antichrist is near, that things are approaching a critical turn. Although I claim this last version is considered and is the most ridiculous and also the most dangerous as to its content, I think it's the one maybe closest to the millenarist radical emancipatory logic. So let me first take a look at the techno-digital apocalyptism. If there is, even more than Bill Gates, a scientist capitalist who perfectly exemplifies the so-called third spirit of capitalism, this postmodern humanitarian, whatever, capitalism, with its non-hierarchic and anti-institutional creativity, humanitarian ethical concerns, and so on, it is Craig Venter, with his idea of DNA-controlled production. Venter's field is synthetic biology, a life which is forged not by Darwinian evolution, but simply created directly by human intelligence. Venter's first breakthrough was to develop so-called shotgun sequencing, a method for analyzing the human genome faster and more cheaply than ever before. He published as you probably know, his own genome, the first time any individual person's DNA had been sequenced. Incidentally, it revealed that Venter is at risk of Alzheimer's, diabetes, and hereditary eye disease. Then he announced his next great project, 
to build an entirely synthetic organism, which could be used to save the world from global warming. In January 2008, Venter constructed the world's first completely synthetic genome of a living organism. Using laboratory chemicals, he recreated an almost exact copy of the genetic material found inside a tiny bacterium. This largest man-made DNA structure is 582,970 base pairs in length. It was pieced together from four, four smaller but still massive strands of DNA by utilizing the transcription power of yeast and is modeled on the genome of a really existing bacterium known as Mycoplasma genitalium. Sounds pornographic, but... Uh, uh, the the lab-made genome has not so far resulted in a living microbe that functions or replicates, but Venter claims it is just a matter of time before they figure out how to boot it up by inserting this synthetic DNA into the shell of another bacterium. This success opens up the way for creating new types of microorganisms, which could be used in numerous ways, as green fuels to replace oil and coal, digest toxic waste or absorb greenhouse gases and so on and so on. Venter's dream is effectively to create the first, what he calls, trillion dollar organisms. Patented bugs that could excrete biofuels, generate clean energy in the form of hydrogen and even produce tailor-made foods. A quote from Venter's self-promotion. Imagine the end of fossil fuels a cessation of ecologically devastating drilling operations, deflation of the political and economic power of neoconservative oil barons, and affordable low-emission transportation, heating, and electricity. The impact of this technology is profound, and it doesn't stop there. By discovering the details of biochemical and metabolic pathways, we can more closely mimic their elegance and efficiency to solve problems that plague industrial civilization. Maybe we'll engineer a primitive self-sustaining bio-robot that feeds on COA and ex excretes O2. Perhaps we could remove mercury from our water supplies. The limitations are not known, but the possibilities are awe-inspiring." End of quote. There are, as Venter admits, also more sinister possibilities. It will also be possible to synthesize viruses like Ebola or to build new pathogens. But the problem is deeper, I think. Such extreme genetic engineering will bring about substantially different organisms. We will find ourselves in a new terrain full of unknowns. The problem is our limited understanding of how DNA works. Even if we can put together a sequence of synthetic DNA, we cannot predict how this sequence will actually perform, how its components will interact. That is to say, DNA communicates with the cell by prompting it to make proteins. And we are far from understanding the relationship between a given DNA sequence, the proteins it generates, and the final properties of an organism. These dangers are strengthened by the absence of any public control over what goes on in this domain. Outside any democratic oversight, 
profiteering industrialists are tinkering with the building blocks of life. Venter tried to allay the fears of an emerging Blade Runner society. Quote again, the movie Blade Runner has an underlying assumption that I just don't relate to, that people want a slave class. As I imagine the potential of engineering the human genome, I think, wouldn't it be nice if we could have 10 times the cognitive capabilities we do have? But people ask me whether I could engineer a stupid person to work as a servant. I've gotten letters from guys in prison asking me to engineer women they could keep in their cell. I don't see us as a society doing that." End of quote. Venter may not see it, but the requests he is bombarded with certainly prove that there is a social demand for the creation of a new serving subclass. Kurzweil offered a different rebuttal of these fears. Quote, the scenario of humans hunting cyborgs doesn't wash because those entities won't be separate. Today, we treat Parkinson's with a pea-sized brain implant, increase that device's capability by a billion and decrease its size by a hundred thousand, and you get some idea of what will be feasible in 25 years. It won't be, okay, cyborgs on the left, humans on the right, the two will be all mixed up, end of quote. While this is in principle true, and one can hear very endlessly Jacques Derrida's motive on how our humanity always already was supplemented by artificial prothesis. The problem is that with the decrease by a hundred thousand, the prothesis is no longer experienced as such, but becomes invisible, part of our immediate organic self-experience. So that those who technologically control the prothesis control us in the very heart of our self experience. The paradox is that, insofar as the recreation of artificial life is the accomplishment of one of the strengths of modernity, it is Jürgen Habermas himself who abstains from accomplishing the project of modernity. Habermas, as you probably know, prefers modernity to remain an unfinished project, setting a limit to the unfolding of its potentials. There are even more radical questions to be raised here. Questions which concern the very limit of our desire and readiness to know. What will prospective parents do when they will be informed that their child will have Alzheimer's genes? The recent new buzzword, previvor, a person who does not have cancer but possesses a genetic predisposition to develop the disease, a pre-survivor, renders perfectly the anxiety of advanced knowledge. And again, although these are still mostly dreams, the first results are here. Chinese scientists at the Beijing Genomic Institute have completed the fourth human genome to be sequenced worldwide. They plan to use their genome database to, look, this is a quote from their brochure, this ominous formulation, to solve problems related to Chinese-specific genetic diseases, end of quote, as well as to improve diagnosis, prediction, and therapy. Such phenomena are just the tip of the iceberg of a process going on in China of which not much is heard in the media preoccupied by the Tibet troubles and so on. The expansion of biogenetic revolution. 
While in the West we are bothered with endless debates on ethical legal limits of biogenetic experiments and pro procedures, stem, stem cells, yes or no, how far should we be allowed to intervene into a genome only to prevent diseases or also to enhance the desired physical or even psychic properties in order to create a newborn which, who fits our desires. The Chinese are simply doing it without any restraints and in a model example of the smooth cooperation between their state agencies, say their Academy of Sciences and private capital. In short, both branches of what Kant called the private use of reason, state and capital, joined hands at the expense of the absent public use of reason, a free intellectual debate in the independent civil society on what is going on. How does all this infringe on individuals' status as ethical autonomous agents, not to mention the possible political misuses? Things are proceeding fast on both fronts, not only towards the dystopian vision of the state controlling and steering the biogenetic mass of its citizens, and incidentally, according to some new documents sent to me by friends from China, this is simply already progressing, at least the plans. Chinese, to cut a long story short, already have a plan how to, in the long term, to put it very simply, control biogenetically the entire population. To, up to the point of making it sure as much as we can influence this, to make it sure with pre-born bio, uh, biogenetic manipulations that you have the desired properties, not too much rebellious, cooperative spirit, whatever you want. Uh, so they are doing this. At the same time, they developed commercial clinics which target rich Western foreigners who, due to legal prohibitions, will not be able to get this kind of treatment in their own countries. The problem is that in such a global situation, legal prohibitions are becoming meaningless. The main effect will be the commercial and scientific advantage of the Chinese facilities. To repeat a cliche, Shanghai has all the chances of becoming a dystopian megalopolis like the anonymous city in Blade Runner. So I claim the next point is that maybe the time is approaching when we will have to turn around the standard complaint of how our relations to other people are more and more mediatized by digital machinery. So that between every face-to-face -face there is an interface. Maybe the prospect of the near future is the explosive development of the direct links between computers and other media so that they will communicate, make decisions and so on presenting us just with the final result of their interaction. Say, when we withdraw money from a cash machine, the machine informs our bank, whose computer sends the information to our PC via email and so on. Already today, there are more connections between computers themselves than between computers and their human users. One could apply Marx's formula here and state that relations between computers, things, are replacing relations between persons. What if out of this interaction a self-organization emerges which can impose its own agenda so that human users no longer control and dominate the digital network but are themselves used by it? Eagle Eye, uh, a techno-thriller from 2008, 
directed by DJ Caruso, uh, deals with this prospect in all its ambiguity. Here is a brief outline of its plot. The movie starts with a standard accident in the war on terror. The US Army has a lead on a suspected terrorist in the Middle East. But as the man is a, a recluse, getting a positive ID proves difficult and the computer system which processes all military data recommends that the mission of killing him be aborted. <clears throat> the Secretary of Defense agrees, but the President of the United States orders the mission to be carried out anyway. This turns out into a political backlash, when all those killed turn out to be civilians and retaliatory bombings <coughs> are carried out by the Arab so-called terrorists in response. Now, the two heroes of the film are introduced, two ordinary US citizens, uh, 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 Jerry and Rachel. They are led to an electronic store where a mysterious woman voice introduces herself to them. She is the voice of a top-secret supercomputer called Autonomous Reconnaissance Intelligence Integration Analysis, ARIA, which gathers intelligence from all over the world and can control virtually anything electronic. So, uh, what the computer's message is that, in light of the mistake made by the president at the beginning of the film, ordering to bomb that Arab village, ARIA has decided that the, because ARIA is trained, trained, sorry, programmed to protect the interests of the people of the United States. And the computer decides that the greatest threat at that point is the executive power of the United States to the public good of American people. It's so, absolutely true. Yeah, that's my point. So ARIA wants to destroy the president's cabinet, all of them living alive, only the secretary of defense, who then should become the next president. Because the Secretary of Defense, uh, you remember from the beginning, was the only one who would say, no, we cannot be sure, we will not. And at the end, everything turns out okay. Okay in the standard sense. The heroes uh, succeed in the last meaning in cutting off Aria, preventing the attentat, the couple is created, Rachel and Jerry, and so on and so on. But my problem is, again, the obvious one, you already stated it, he is is ARIA not simply and truly a rational agent? Is the computer not acting in the interest of the people of the United States? Would it not effectively be the best for the United States if the computer's plan were to succeed? ARIA is ready to sacrifice dozens of innocent bystanders in the Capitol building in the attentat it organizes. But so did the president when he okayed the killing of the dozens of Arab civilians. And this is, I think, a nice sign of confusion and ideological inconsistency of the film. First, it presents Arya almost in a sympathetic way, you know, like the bad, the president is obviously presented as a bad guy. But then I thought they would make something out of this line. But no, it turned then in a simple thriller where all of a sudden, without even any ideological justification, the computer turns uh, into a bad, not even a bad guy, a bad woman, even, <laughs> even better. Because it all, it's, it's incredible in what sense it's this standard, uh, this standard mythical even uh, scenario is revitalized, that you have decisive men, warriors, president, confronting some kind of a gigantic squid-like 
primordial woman who, who controls all and so on and so on. So where does all this lead? Now I'm asking a very simple question. You got it, not yet any Lacanian theory and so on. First, I claim something pretty serious is happening. I think we are not dealing here with science fiction. I asked some of my biologist friends and so on. They effectively think that, okay, maybe not in two years, but in 10 years. On the other hand, many things happen faster than we think. Effectively, and this is a true revolution, I claim, we, uh, artificial life will be created but not in the sense of supercomputers who imitate life, also not in the sense of grafting and using, that's the catch, building blocks from you know, this kind of grafting. You take a piece of bacteria, a take of a piece of monkey, a piece of Northern American and whatever, and create a monster, you know, some kind of a monkey with American head and spider's feet, whatever. No, it's, you got my point. The point is to do not to cheat, not even to use the already existing genomes. It's quite, it's quite fantastic what they, they, it looks they will be able to do, to create really from the zero level new life. And again, the question is, how will this affect our everyday experience? Uh, let me ask the question in more general terms, because another thing happened which I, I checked it on YouTube, and you can find it anywhere. If you just go to YouTube and put it six cents, uh, and YouTube, whatever, you will get it. Namely, a guy called Pranav Mystery, a member of the Fluid Interface Group at the MIT Media Lab, uh, presented to the public. The thing is known already for over half a year, but now it was made public, uh, a wearable he calls it gestural interface. The hardware is minimal. A small web camera dangling from my neck, a pocket projector also around my neck, and a mirror, all connected wirelessly to a smartphone in my pocket, which is, of course, then connected with the with internet, with the, the digital network. This forms a mobile wearable device. What does it do. It's quite fascinating. The user starts the interaction by handling objects or making gestures by his or her hands. The camera recognizes and tracks the user's hand, hand gestures and physical objects using computer vision-based uh, techniques. So again, let's say I have a bottle, this bottle of water, I just hold it, the computer, the camera identifies it, gives the data to the, uh, to the, to, uh, to the, uh, to the, to the smartphone, the smartphone, of course, transmits it to the web, and then, the, so again, the software program processes the video stream data, reading them as instructions, this data, and retrieves instantly the appropriate informations texts, images from the internet. And then this data, when they come back, are projected. You remember there was also a small projector. The informations are projected on any physical surface available. You don't need a screen anymore. And it's magically how it already works. It can be table, surface of a book, whatever. All surfaces, walls and physical objects around the 
subject can be used as interface. Here are, just to give you, and this, my God, it's quite fascinating if they didn't stage it all, I first thought. But then I called some friends who have friends and they told me, no, it's shocking, but it's real. Here are some examples of how it already works. For example, in a bookstore, I pick up a book and hold it in front of me. Immediately, I see projected onto the book's covers, reviews, ratings, and so on and so on. It works immediately, you know. You just do it like this, a book, and you get it. Or, uh, or uh, if I want to check the time, I only do this. In, like, you know, the watch. Immediately, it's projected onto my left wrist. Uh, the projector displays a clock. When I hold my fingers out at the arm's length, the system recognizes the gestures as framing a scene. For example, it's really this already again it does. For example, nothing tasteless, don't be afraid. I want you will get them there. No, promise I will. I'm a good Christian now, John Milbank, my friend, and so on, nothing. Uh, let's say I do this. Uh, the camera recognizes this as framing. I need a photo of you. And immediately I do this, it's my photo, and then I just uh, utter a word and I can go around the city just doing this, this. In the <laughs> evening, I sit at home, I don't even need a screen. I made the sign, all the photos appear, I can enlarge them and so on and so on. Although I don't know what to do with your photos, but that's another thing. Okay. Or, or even nicer, uh, uh, for example, uh, for example, uh, uh, on the way to the airport, I'm not sure how is the plane. This already works, you know. You just hold in front of you the boarding pass, and immediately it's projected onto it. 20 minutes delay, no delay, flight cancelled, or, or, or whatever. Or internet. There it's really magical. All you do is make this uh, uh, at sign. Computer recognizes it. You just approach any surface. Immediately the screen is projected. You touch it. It is red as you know. You're what about courting? Does it help in courting? This is, uh, of course, my first dirty association. <laughs> how it works? You can imagine, yes, how how it would have worked at that level. Because okay, so again, the, no, it really you should look at it because it's shocking how well it already works, even at this clumsy level. And uh, the shock is even that even at this experimental level where there is no longer, uh, uh, where, sorry, it's not yet mass-produced, blah, blah, all this costs uh, $350. I mean, okay, it's not nothing, but if you, if you imagine that we are still at this level, no? So it can be generally accessible. Why is this machine so interesting? Mystery, the guy, Indian, who invented it, emphasizes the physical aspect of this interaction. Till now, internet and computer were isolating me from physical reality around me. The archetypal internet user is a geek, geek setting, sitting alone in front of a screen and immerse into it, oblivious of the reality around him or her. That's the idea we have, you know, cut off from just here with six sense, I remain embedded in physical interaction with objects. The alternative, physical reality or the screen, is replaced by a direct interpenetration of the two. Real physical objects I interact with are thus augmented 
by projecting more information about them onto them. And since this information is projected directly onto things, the effect is magic and mystifying. Things appear to continuously reveal or rather emanate their own interpretation. You know, like, for example, I don't know, I, I, uh, I don't know, I look at this table and the way computer interprets it, I immediately get it projected, made of this wood, bought a discount there, you want this table there. But you know what I mean? The, the, I, it's, you don't perceive it as coming from all that machinery. For me, crucially, is this magic effect as if things, this basic ideological mystification, as if things emanate data about themselves. And yes, yes, but it's his guilt. He provoked me. With sexuality, I can imagine. So now comes it. Yes, no. You look at a woman, it says, easy to get, she prefers fellatio, and you know, everything. Let, don't provoke me further into this direction. No, I. I okay. Uh, now, the first thing to note here is that sixth sense is not simply a radical break with our everyday experience. It rather openly stages what was always already the case. That is to say, is it not that in our everyday experience of reality, the big other, the thick symbolic texture of knowledge, expectations, prejudices, and so on, continuously fills in the gaps in our perception, say, a Western racist stumbles upon a poor Arab on the street. Is it not that he, in a way, projects onto the Arab and then perceives in the Arab all his prejudices, fake knowledge, and so on and so on? You get my point? In a naive way, this is happening when, if I am Western anti-Arab racist, if I see an Arab, I don't just see an Arab. I see all the prejudices and so on. Uh, uh, this is why I claim Sixth Sense presents us with another case of ideology at work in technology. Sixth Sense imitates and materializes the ideological mechanism of misrecognition which overdetermines our everyday perceptions and interactions. The question is to what, and I cannot decide here, I conceive my stupidity, to what extent does the open staging of this mechanism undermine its efficiency. You know, you see my point. In a way, nothing new happens, just what was till now implicit is rendered direct. But I claim sometimes, nonetheless, mechanisms are efficient only insofar as they remain implicit. So I'm not, so I claim, I'm trying not to be a pessimist here. Or oh, I see the dangers. The dangers are that you know, of course, where is the catch? The catch is that, of course, for example, what will I see in this case when I see an Arab? Of course, it will not be my prejudices, but you know, who controls the big other, the digital network, and so on. This opens, I think, tremendous possibilities for ideological control and so on. You know, so that at least in the case of the Arabs, anti-Arab racism, the, the data that you project or the hermeneutic horizon, how you perceive an Arab, we are your own prejudices in some sense, which means through ideological self-criticism, whatever, you can change them. While here, you know, you can't do basically anything. And those who 
control the internet, can control you much more effectively. On the other hand, uh, precisely because the mechanism is transparent, maybe a new space for critical distance is opening. Because the problem with my everyday racism, and I'm a racist, but my only, as I usually say, redemption is that I'm a universal racist. I hate all racism, the only solution. <laughs> that uh, that uh, what I, uh, uh, you know, the problem is that when I see an Arab, if I'm an anti-Arab racist, uh, I don't, I'm not even aware of the projection. I think it's an immediate perception. While the moment I see it as projected, even if it appears that it emanates from the thing itself, the moment I see it as that, in some way the mechanism becomes palpable, which opens up a distance uh, towards it. This is uh, one thing which I claim will, again, incredibly change our perception, our, uh, our interactivity. Again, why? Because, as again this guy, Mystery, uh, emphasized, it's no longer this opposition between, you know, either, as they, they like to put it, from both sides, the nature love, like, forget about PC, go out, experience the fresh reality, uh, a nice meadow, grass, uh, whatever. No, you cannot escape it here, you know. You go to a nice grass and then you see projected onto it, you know. Too many worms don't like down bugs, they can bite you, whatever. You know, like, you know, in a way, this interpenetration, which, of course, it can be put in fashionable New Age terms, like you see the levels of meaning and physical reality are no longer separated. They fall together into a unique holistic experience. Yes, but this holistic experience is not innocent. It is controlled by an invisible, very complex mechanism. This is one line. Again, I'm just opening up the problem. The next one, on which I've already did a lot of work, but I think more should be done, is even more important. According to a CNN report, I'm sorry if I sound so journalistic, I'm sounding like the, the worst novel of all times, I mean it, I read it for ideology, and it's so bad, The Lost Symbol, you know, the last Dan Brown, and it shocked me to what extent <laughs> this novel, it, it really, as one of the critics said, it started a new genre, like, you know, if you had the misfortune of reading the novel, you probably saw that it's like it, it's an exchange of one and a, you usually get for five pages some kind of uh, uh, stupid description of simply one person running from another or in some stupid tunnel beneath Washington, whatever, and then five pages of the cheapest Wikipedia information, you know. All of a sudden they stop and one guy, Freemasons were in 1600, something disappears. I mean, it's, uh, it's just breathtaking. Although there is a more, if you desperately want to find not something redeeming, but something interesting, nonetheless, some, uh, some uh, critics found an interesting feature. You know that the place of this novel is Washington. What he did in some previous novels, Dan Brown, is, you know, to penetrate literally the underground of the city of, of, of uh, Paris, uh, Rome, and so on, and literally to bring out all the history buried there. Now, we all know that the United States are 
non-historical. But the mystification is that through digging to all those uh, miserable 200 years old uh, uh, tunnels beneath, they, the, the thesis of the novel is to, to elevate the pride of the United States. We are also like Europe, a historical society, like dig and you will find mysteries from here and there and so on and so on. And there is, of course, I already mentioned this in my yesterday's talk, things are even much at SICA, things are even much worse with the lost symbol. Namely... Is this new now? The new novel. Oh, you are no, out no, of no. touch with culture. No, what? <laughs> no, 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 no. New in relation to ICA last night. Yeah, no, no, no. Just I want to draw attention to one fact that it's the first novel without, without even any sexual tensions. You know what I mean? The couple is no longer created. Like, you remember in, uh, in uh, Angels and Demons, the novel, there still was, they screwed, to cut a long story short. <laughs> then, did you notice that in the cinema version, Tom Hanks and that beautiful Israeli actress, Ayelet Zurer, they don't do it, totally non-erotic. Then, in Da Vinci Code, also, they don't consummate it. And to paraphrase my friend Darian Leader, it is as if all the things happening out there, like poor Jesus had to screw Mary, to cover up the fact that here, they don't do it. And then in The Lost Symbol, it's even worse. I mean, absolutely no sexual tension and so on and so on. I don't think there is anything emancipatory in this. I think it's basically a shift. I think that beneath the mask of uh, permissibility and so on and so on, the oppression and fear of neighbor is getting so strong that the model of pleasure becomes more and more uh, 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 some kind of uh, 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 masturbation sustained by the most you can get is a virtual other. So I claim even if you do something by misfortune with the real other, it has the structure of a masturbation with the real partner, how should I put it? It's as if if you engage yourself with a real other, it is as if it's too intrusive. It's too much of a harassment, as they put it, in the United States. So, okay, let me go on. According to this CNN report, in May 2008, monkeys with sensors implanted in their brains have learned to control a robot arm with their thoughts, using it to feed themselves with fruit and so on. In the experiment, a pair of monkeys were fitted with electrodes, the width, the width of a human hair, that transmitted signals from the area of the brain linked to movements. Scientists behind the experiment say it will lead to the creation of brain-controlled prosthetic limbs. For example, here, uh, no, it wasn't sorry here, it was in University of South Florida that the first prototype is already operative. A wheelchair-mounted robotic arm controlling by thought alone is already created. The device gives people with full body paralysis who have functional brains but no way to express their thoughts, the ability to perform simple day-to-day -day functions. A kind of a scanning machine, again, scans your brain and it's able to recognize these most elementary signals, basically forward, backward, left, right. And you see the point, you don't need even that famous Stephen Hawking finger, you just intensely think about it and the machine the machine, uh, the machine moves. So, uh, and uh, this again goes further. For example, uh, 
we more and more learn the uncanny fact that the U.S. secret defense agencies are involved in a wide long-term project to develop means to control human emotions and attitudes from outside by way of attacking brains by precise electromagnetic waves. So you see my point. This is the other side. You will say, nice, wonderful. I can move things with the sheer power of my brain. The problem is that if it goes outside, it goes also inside. That is to say, I was told by some military specialists that everybody in the world is doing this like crazy. The Chinese, Americans, of course, Russians. This idea of, uh, 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 of uh, attacking directly your mind, for example, they can do it with anxiety and panic. They isolated the waves which your mind is secreting when you are in a panic. They succeeded in reproducing in a mechanical way, these waves, electromagnetic waves, and if they bombard you with these waves, you are simply in a panic. And I was told they already have it. Like, you can cover a certain area, you press the button, people are in a panic there. Uh, of course, the ideal that regulates this process is the full control of past and future at the psychic level. The strategy is always the same. An invention is first presented as a crucial remedy for some extreme illness. You know, they always start with helping the cripples, children with defects, and so on and so on. But then it goes on. There are already researches into genetic and biochemical interventions which would selectively erase the subject's traumatic past. You know, this is how this mind control of memory, it's progressing. Of course, they put it first in the humanitarian way. Think about a poor child being raped. Wouldn't it be nice to, to erase that traumatic event from her brain? But you know, you start this, it goes on. No, The procedure is universalized. Or rich prospective parents can already afford to have their unborn child's brain scanned for traces of possible future mental weaknesses low IQ, criminal tendencies, and so on, and so on. I think that one has to avoid here the double trap, the utopian dream of benevolent cleansing of the brain, of protecting it from illnesses, but also the false doomsday perspective which sees such interventions as the end of humanity. Now I want to confront the more basic problem. There exists a thing called uh, the World Transhumanist Association, founded, I think, even in London in 98 by Nick Bostrom and David Pierce. It set itself the task to deal with these problems. It describes itself as, I quote, an international non-profit, of course, membership organization which advocates the ethical use of technology to expand human capacities, end of quote. Its premise is that human development in evolutionary terms has not reached anything like an end point. All kinds of emerging technologies, neuropharmacology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnologies, and so on, have the potential to enhance our abilities. As Bostrom put it, a quote, a few years ago, the discussions would typically revolve around the question, is this science fiction or are we dealing in realistic future possibilities? Now, the discussions tend to start from the position that yes, it will be increasingly possible to modify human capacities. The issue now is whether we should do it, and if so, what are the ethical constraints?" End of quote. 
in contrast to Nietzsche's notion of Ubermensch, Overman, which aims at a moral and cultural transcendence, a selected few endowed with strong willpower and great refinement will throw off the shackles of traditional morality and so on. The transhumanist idea of a post-human aims at a society in which everybody will have access to enhancement technologies. Again, a quote. Transhumanists advocate increased funding for research to radically extend healthy lifespan and favor the development of medical and technological means to improve memory, concentration, and other human capacities. Transhumanists propose that everybody should have the option to use such means to enhance various dimensions of their cognitive, emotional, and physical well-being. Not only is this a natural extension of the traditional aims of medicine and technology, but it is also a great humanitarian opportunity to genuinely improve the human condition." End of quote. Consequently, the main ethical concerns are those of accessibility and those of who is transforming whom. The last quote. It's one thing if we are talking about adult competent citizens deciding what to do with their own bodies. If, on the other hand, we are thinking about modifying children or selecting embryos, then there is another set of ethical questions that arise. There is a further, uh, sorry, uh, there is a further set of ethical questions relating to access. If some of the technologies, as they well might, turn out to be very expensive, then what mechanisms should be in place to ensure fairness?" End of quote. So, to prevent state or private institutions deciding our fate, the choice whether to avail oneself to such enhancement options should generally reside with the individual. But again, is this enough? End of quote, of course, no. With all their warning about how we are on the brink of a post-human era, and that would be my fundamental reproach to them, transhumanists effectively remain too humanist. Again, with all their warning about how new era is exploding, uh, when they describe the possibility of intervening into our biogenetic base and changing our very nature, they somehow presuppose that the autonomous subject freely deciding on his or her acts will still be here, deciding on how to change his or her nature. They thus bring the split between the subject of the enunciated, what we call in Lacanian theory, the subject about which we talk, and the subject of the enunciation, the speaking subject, to its extreme. On the one hand, as an object of my interventions, I am a biological mechanism whose properties, up to the mental ones, can be manipulated. On the other hand, I act as if I am somehow exempted from this manipulation, an autonomous individual who, from a distance, can make the right choices. But what about the prospect of the loop getting closed so that my very power of autonomous decision is already meddled with by biogenetic manipulation? This is why there is effectively something shallow, boring even, in all transhumanist meditations. They basically ignore the problem. Like their critics, and like their critics, they avoid the core of the question, which they seem to be dealing 
with all the time. How will biogenetic and other interventions affect the very definition of humanity? Bostrom emphasizes that the choice whether to avail oneself of, of such enhancement options should generally reside with the individual. But will this individual still be here? Both transhumanists and their critics thus unproblematically cling to the standard notion of a free, autonomous individual. The difference is that transhumanists simply accept that it will somehow survive the passage in the post-human era, while their critics see post-humanity as a threat and therefore want to prevent its rise. Brought to its extreme, this techno-digital apocalyptism assumes the form of the so-called tech-gnosis and openly passes over into the New Age apocalyptism. What looms at the horizon of the digital revolution is that nothing else than the prospect that human beings will acquire this capacity of directly interacting with material reality in, in the sense of my uh, mind directly influencing reality, the example that I already mentioned, and we can imagine how it will be developed, that you think about it and it happens, as it were, that you can directly move objects with my, with your mind. Uh, on, on, so on the one hand, it will be possible through neurological implants to switch from our common reality to another computer-generated reality, without all the clumsy machinery of today's virtual reality, the awkward glasses, gloves, and so on. Since the signals of the virtual reality will directly reach our brain, bypassing our sensoring, sensory organs. Again, Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol provides an exemplary case of the spiritual mystification of these ongoing scientific breakthroughs. The fact that brain sciences are slowly unraveling the neuronal processes which support thinking, that is to say, which things happen in our brain when we think, is mystified into the New Age notion of thinking itself influencing material processing. Furthermore, this spiritualist Mystification is supplemented by a piece of vulgar materialism. In the David Chalmers style, you know, the guy who thinks that, that uh, psychic awareness is, should be recognized as the fifth, as simply another elementary natural force. The Lost Symbol, the novel, claims that thought itself possesses a separate material existence of its own. That's supposed to be the big mystery revealed at the end that you can isolate some kind of a sli slimy, shit, shitty stuff, which is allegedly like the direct materialization of thought itself, of the soul. So the new age announced by the novel, the shattering transformation which will affect humanity, is what? It's that the gap that separates thinking from reality will be overcome. Humanity will reawaken its spiritual potentials, we will become like gods in the precise sense of deploying the ability to directly, through thought alone, influence reality. Magic and science, faith and knowledge will thus be reconciled with the ancient faith acquiring new experimental confirmation. Against this ideology, I think, we should assert that symbol as such, the symbolic order in which we humans dwell, is the symbol of a loss. In other words, 
what the novel, the lost symbol, presents as a loss. You know, the novel, again, adopts this new age attitude that things went really bad with all this lost distance. First, in Logos, we lost contact with mythic reality, with modern rationalism, we lost this gradual loss of contact with reality. But this loss, we should consider it as the very gap which sustains our freedom of thinking. You know, they are looking, this would be my first answer to all this New Age stuff, how our thought must rejoin reality. That that's the miracle. For me, if your thought produces some shit there or whatever, this is not a miracle. The true miracle is the gap itself. Here I'm even a Heideggerian. The true miracle is how we can acquire distance from reality and think. That's the most precious thing. I mean, it's, I, I simply see, I mean, if you look behind all this mystery of we will be able to influence reality and so on, I, I claim what is behind this is just this vulgar fact that, of course, thoughts have a certain materiality because they are ultimately material and so on. And I think, again, we should turn things around and precisely uh, uh, celebrate what the New Agers are presenting to us as the tragic loss. We lost organic unity with nature and so on. Thanks God that we lost it. That's why we are free human beings. Now I go a little bit, if you allow me, into more thinking. Now the journalism is over. Um, what underlines this, all this topic of rejoining the holistic reality of being one with nature is the status of the so-called Western exception, which culminates in Western modernity. The shift from organic whole to universality. Universality which introduces a rupture, a cut into holistic totality. Uh, a, a distance from particular spiritualized life worlds, when we jump to global secular order and so on and so on. Hegel conceives this shift as the passage from the ancient Greek aesthetic whole of polis to the Christian abstract universality. On a closer look, we can see how this shift repeats itself three times in Western history. First, as the shift from mythos to logos, the break of the Greek philosophy from the traditional mythic universe. And here, Alain Badiou is right when he pointed out how Parmenides is the point of passage. You remember, you know this better, but in the first line, one of the few surviving fragments, he is nonetheless with one leg still in the mythic. Because you remember, he addresses the goddess, no? The goddess truth, I think, I'm not sure, Parmenides. So it's the first breakthrough toward conceptual thinking, one, but as it were, still in the mythic form. Then the story goes on. Then the Christian break with the pagan cosmos, which culminates in the so-called irrational rejection of the world, the withdrawal into the non-thought of the night of the world, what mystic calls this. Finally, the modern disenchantment of reality, the rise of the Cartesian subject opposed to the mute and meaningless infinite universe. For today's anti-modernist partisans of a new post-secular holistic paradigm, each time things went fatally wrong. When Plato asserted abstract notional thinking against the thought embedded in a concrete life world, when Christianity asserted the Christian believer as an abstract individual, not as a member of concrete 
organic, traditional community, when Cartesian modernity broke with the pre-modern universe of mythic meaning. For them, the whole idea of secular modernism and universalism is a freakish idiosyncrasy in the history of the human species, the root of our ecological and other disasters. Ultimately, secular modernism is an impossible position, an illusion, and, as Bruno Latour put it, we were never really modern. I claim that against this temptation, it is absolutely crucial for the emancipatory politics to remain faithful to this universalist secular project of modernity. Again, we should fearlessly celebrate what is presented to us as a problem. You know, the, the, the prob for example, the, uh, the problem is not, my God, we lost immediate contact with reality. The problem is that we experience this as a problem. We should celebrate it. Uh, what does this mean? Now I come to Hegel, how this works. Uh, uh, where can Hegel help us? Precisely if we drop the standard approach to the dialectical process, which is the so-called synthesis of the opposites model. The model which no wonder can be immediately accepted, endorsed by New Agers and so on, Jungians especially. In the opposition between Freud and Jung, Freud was here a true Hegelian, in contrast to Jung's pseudo-Hegelian compensation theory. What do I mean by this? You know, where is the difference really between Freud and Jung? It's not just that, I don't know, for Jung there is one desexualized libido, for Freud, Eros and Thanatos and so on. No, the fundamental difference is somewhere else. Freud was a materialist. You know in what sense? At, for Freud, for example, when he describes symptoms and so on, he always emphasized that we are not talking about some kind of a direct spiritual causality. Think, things happen in a natural way. For example, you become ill and then your unconscious parasitizes upon it and used it as meaning and so on. But the, the point is again that, that it's not that beneath reality there is some unconscious in a mysterious way steering reality. Reality is there totally contingent and all meaning is as it were you know, meaning is opportunistic, parasitic upon it. While if you read Jung closely, he does precisely the opposite. For him, there is a deeper spiritual reality which somehow steers the usual reality. So what is then this Jungian, pseudo-Hegelian, so-called compensation theory? A quote from Jung. Whenever life proceeds one-sidedly in any given direction, the self-regulation of the organism produces in the unconscious an accumulation of all those factors which play too small a part in the individual's conscious existence. For this reason, I have put forward the compensation theory of the unconscious as a complement to the repression theory." End of quote. Now, it is easy to perceive how this relates to neurotic symptoms and their therapy. That's Jung's idea. When the ego gets too narrow and rigid, excluding from its scope the irrational tendencies which do not fit his or her, its self-image, these tendencies return in the guise of neurotic symptoms. Say, when a man 
curtails, oppresses his feminine shadow, anima, cutting it off his identity, the anima returns to haunt him in the guise of monstrous, obscene feminine figures in which he is not able to recognize himself. And the man experiences them as brutal foreign intrusions. The goal of therapy is therefore not to fight these symptoms, not to eliminate them, but to integrate them into a wider self which transcends the narrow confines of ego. These symptoms stand for, for, stand for forces which are not in themselves evil and destructive. What makes them such is the false perspective of the ego. Or, as Hegel would have put it, evil resides in the very gaze which perceives evil everywhere around itself. So, according to Jung, when ego is haunted by neurotic symptoms, the task of the therapist is to make the patient see how his ego is part of the problem, not the solution. The ego should shift its perspective and recognize in his symptom a distorted, violent expression of the disavowed part of himself. The true illness is that of the ego, and neurotic symptoms are desperate attempts at a cure, attempts to re-establish the balance disturbed by the ego's narrow frame, which excluded crucial parts of the self's content. Uh, another quote from Jung. A neurosis is truly removed only when it has removed the false attitude of the ego. We do not cure it. It cures us. A man is ill, but the illness is nature's attempt to heal him. And what the neurotic flings away as absolutely worthless contains the true gold we should never have found elsewhere. End of quote. No wonder that some partisans of Jung see in this compensation theory a Hegelian background. Here is a quote from a popular book on Jung. It was Hegel who argued that the only way a battle could cease between a thesis and an antithesis is through the construction of a synthesis that would include elements from both sides and transcend the opposition. Although Jung denied that Hegel was an influence on his thought, it is hard to imagine Jungian thought without the Hegelian model that sees conflict overcome through the creation of a transcendent third, which is neither thesis nor antithesis, but a new entity in which both are included." End of quote. I think that here, nonetheless, Jung was right. There effectively is no trace of Hegel in Jung's compensation theory. This dismissal, my dismissal, may appear too fast, since many formulations of Jung effectively, for example, recall Hegel's notion of reconciliation of the subject with its alienated substance. The idea of Hegel is how you should recognize in the foreign power that you fight the misrecognized part of your own substance. This dialectic of recognition effectively belongs to the young Hegel. It found its definitive expression in the so-called Jena period fragments on love and reconciliation, and later, for example, in Hegel's reading of Antigone, you know, as the tragic confrontation of the two opposed positions, Antigones and Creons. It really looks as if Hegel is there a Jungian, you know. Antigone neglects the public aspect, the state. Creon neglects these private divinities, whatever. And again, each should recognize in the other the oppressed truth of himself. So here is 
Jung's most Hegelian formulation, quote, the individual is faced with the necessity of recognizing and accepting what is different and strange as part of his own life, as a kind of also I, like, but that's also me, all the nightmares which haunt me. Uh, now, you will say, but what's bad about it? Isn't this, isn't there something great in this model? Well, not too great. The first thing, totally accidental, contingent, that should make you think is that based on precisely this reasoning, Jung for one year supported the Nazis. His reading was that our Western civilization was way too influenced by the Jewish abstract uh, rational side, and so this is why barbarism emerged. But what we need is, as he put it, the revival of the Wotan archetype of this uh, Nordic vitality and so on to counteract the Jewish abstract uh, cunning, uh, just work of reason and so on. So we need to to re-establish, uh, we need to re-establish the balance. But I claim there is a problem here. And precisely this is the reason why this idea is not Hegelian, although it sounds Hegelian, you know, this idea of reconciliation with an apparent enemy that what you exclude from yourself continues to haunt you and so on and so on. Let's imagine precisely the example, for example, but the same goes for all forms of racism, the struggle between the Nazis and the Jews. Again, in a first approach, the Jungian notion of shadow as the misrecognized alter ego seems fitting here. Is there effectively not a strange echoing and redoubling between the Nazi elevation of Aryan Germans and the Jewish self-perception as the chosen nation. Was it not already Schoenberg, Arnold, the composer, who dismissed Nazi racism as a miserable imitation of the Jewish identity as the chosen people? However, what breaks down here is precisely this mirroring relationship. Now, I want you to be very attentive to this point. Uh, I claim that this Jungian dialectics of recognition to recognize in the horror that you combat your own truth holds in a properly Hegelian way, and this is the true Hegelian dialectics of the opposites, holds only for one side. You can effectively say for the Nazis that that, that, uh, that uh, in the figure of the Jew, they should recognize the oppressed, excluded part of themselves. That if you want to put it in this way, not the real Jew, but the figure of the Jew is the symptom in which what the Nazis disavowed, ultimately, to put it in simplified Marxist terms, social antagonism, class struggle, whatever, returns to haunt you as the terrible feature of the, of the haunting Jew, and so on and so on. But as we all know, it would be obscene even to claim it, we cannot make the same operation for the other. Think. You know, we can say that this holds for the Nazis, but the same does not hold for the, for the Jew. Can you really claim that the Nazi is the symptom of the Jew? So that a Jew should see how what haunts him as a Nazi is really just the excluded part of his own identity, so that uh, the, the, the Jew should, I quote here Schelling, uh, should recognize in the Nazi the true gold they should never have found elsewhere. 
you see the you see the, the the radical asymmetry and that's crucial that's what is missing i claim in this model of uh, uh, in this model of dialectical unity like both elements are one sided and we need a third position no we don't need a third position uh, the polarity in hegel is never a symmetric polarity so that then you go into this stupid common sense neither he is right nor he is right but some higher synthesis and so on and so on the first step of a hegelian analysis when you are dealing with a, a struggle a contradiction is to isolate the determining element the one which generates its opposite as its own shadow maybe a little bit in jungian way for example and this will be problematic for my liberal critics i was i'm the first to advocate that we should sometimes make a pact of course with liberals against racism and so on and so on but when we are dealing today with the opposition of let us say liberal individualism and uh, so-called communitarian totalitarianism absolutely we should avoid like hell any this jungian notions of you know one go too far in one direction the others go too far in the other direction so we should do like like uh, uh, john milbank in the book that i co-wrote with him what i then called softly his soft fascism and so on you know like the right way you know not too much individualism this is the communitarian dream no a kind of a also a dream of christian uh, personalism a kind of a proper measure yes individual freedoms but still grounded in a community and so on and so on it doesn't work in this way why because uh, there is no higher element the whole point is that in the opposition between liberal individualism and let's call it communitarian fundamentalism the determining factor is liberal individualism is i claim is this global capitalist liberal logic and again this doesn't mean we we blame it we should make pact but pacts with them in concrete struggle but we should always insist on one crucial point it is uh, today's fundamentalism which is the symptom of liberalism not vice versa you know the determining factor is liberalism which means the only way to enact the change is to change not to destroy it with new totalitarianism but just that as long as we have liberalism the way we have it it will generate at its opposition fundamentalism as it's for me as i repeat i think also in my this tragedy farce last book clear for me uh, for example i maybe i'm sorry if i repeat myself you already know this example take uh, afghanistan if there was a fundamentalist country which we all know it as such is today's Afghanistan. But wait a minute, some of us, at least I, am old enough to remember 30, 40 years ago, Afghanistan was, you know this, the single most secular and tolerant of near Middle East uh, Muslim countries. They had a, a kind of a pro-Western enlightened monarch who tried to do some Shah-like, but Iranian Shah-like, but much less radical, uh, uh, how do you call this, uh, uh, modernization. They had a very strong local communist party, which, as you probably know, with the coup d'etat took power even without the Soviet Union. What happened then? Then uh, they got week to week to survive. Soviet Union intervened. Then United States supported the opposition. And out of this, how do you call it, getting 
becoming global of Afghanistan, it's, Afghanistan became fundamentalist. So you see my point. It's not globalization progresses and, oh, you have there some stupid primitive countries which need... No, the fundamentalization of Afghanistan, it's the result of the very process by means of which Afghanistan was caught into global capitalist politics and so on and so on. That's the absolutely crucial thing always to ask when we are dealing with so-called fundamentalist. It's the same in the United States. Probably you know it. I'm sorry to repeat myself, but my big example, uh, uh, Kansas, you know that popular book, Thomas Frank. No, how? No, the crucial thing to remember is that Kansas, as you maybe know, is today the Bible Belt fundamentalist Christian state. But till 30 years ago, it was the state with the greatest number of populist, leftist, for example, already in the Civil War. John Brown is from Kansas. They were the most radical uh, uh, anti-slavery uh, uh, state within the United States and so on. So again, what happened then in 30, 40 years, the very bedrock of progressive leftist populism turned into you see, this process we should bear in mind, which means, again, the, the solution is not synthesis. In this case, the solution to the opposition liberalism fundamentalism is not, yeah, yeah, a higher synthesis, a little bit of this. It's, it is to accept that this opposition is a real opposition, but nonetheless, as such, in a way, a false opposition. A false opposition not in the, I'm not claiming in a primitive way, oh, liberals are really fundamentalist, racist. What I'm claiming that liberals do not take into account enough in what way the very civilization they stand for generates what they fight. Like, take another example, which I think I mentioned in my last book, it's typical, and almost nobody again talks about it, Congo. You know, Congo, nightmare, primitive, five million died, and so on. But Congo is not such a nightmare because it is excluded from globalization. It's the very mode of its inclusion. You know where you can get this. Do, do you remember half a year ago, there was, I think, some rebellion against the Congo uh, uh, central government in some eastern province, and it was interesting and crucial to read what happened. What were, was the demand of those that rebellious group. It was that the central government should, uh, should break, abandon the contract it made with China. Okay, it's now another story. I think we should approach it if we're honest leftists. Also the story about Chinese economic neocolonialism. Like, are you aware that you remember in Myanmar, Burma, in Myanmar, uh, those big demonstrations, they were controlled through Chinese help. Uh, Myanmar is effectively a Chinese economic colony now. But what I'm saying is that nonetheless Chinese offered to Congo something which is colonialism, neocolonialism, but maybe it would have worked. The, it's tremendously important what happened there. China made a deal with Congo that they will invest, like we are speaking about real sums of money, like comparable to those that we give now to the bank so that their bosses can again share profits and those special, whatever. We are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. Basically, China offered to rebuild the entire infrastructure to make Congo a functioning state, which now it's not. You know, to rebuild the entire uh, uh, rail 
network of rails, uh, 2030 hospitals, universities, and so on. Of course, in exchange for the complete, uh, uh, for the all uh, natural resources. This was a threat to some people. Was what is now the reality of Congo? It is that we have so-called warlords who control parts. And all of them has, each of them, specific deals with some Western companies. For example, how is it called? The cheat tungsten or what that you put into computers and so on. All the stuff. So you see the point. The point is that Congo is kept in this state of no, non-functioning as a state of being divided into different domains with these humanitarian nightmares, not because it's not globalized enough. This is the mode of the inclusion of Congo into global market. That's my answer to those who claim global market brings prosperity and so on and so on. It brings, but it also keeps Congo where it is. It produces Afghanistan. Take Iraq. Like the guy who criticized me, I heard recently in the review of my book, was it in Independence? Norman, how do you pronounce it? No, no, John Gray is another one. Uh, uh, I have the list of, I have a black book, all the names are there. You know, I'm slowly composing. You know that the Nazis, when they planned the invasion of England in 39, you can buy it somewhere at a print. They already printed a book with all the people to arrest. And they made this stupid mistake, you know, 1940, Freud was already dead. They still list, you know, Freud up there to arrest. No, I'm composing a similar book when we, when we take over. No, no, but what I want to say, Norman Geras or Geras? Norman Geras, he said that it's uh, ridiculous of me to blame liberalism, for example, for what Afghanis are doing. No, I don't blame them in the moralistic sense. Of course, I believe in their sincerity and so on and so on. But wait a minute, if we were cruel, and it was right that we were cruel, against communist regimes, claiming, fuck off with your idea, let's see what you really produced. Let's, if we always emphasize how really existing socialism was a nightmare, let's then also look at really existing liberalism, not the ideals. And there you see that, okay, I agree with Geras and others who claim, but wait a minute, whatever you reproach the West with, nonetheless, they are going there to these countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, precisely to bring Western enlightenment. Maybe that's the reason why they are going. What they produced is exactly the opposite. Look at Iraq. The I am totally opposed to, I don't have any of this bullshit, you know, anyone who fights United States is our friend, so Saddam was our hero for resisting. But one thing you should admit to Saddam, he did relatively secularize the country. The first five years of Saddam, the entire legitimization was much more secular, patriotic, basically nationalist. So you see the paradox that now, of course, United States are in a panic. I understand that because they know that if they leave now Iraq, probably the country will fall apart. From my friends in Turkey, I learned Kurds are practically already building their capital. I mean, I support them and so on. So the scenario is that uh, Shia in the south will take over. This means through Shia, basically Iran. This means to cut a long story short, the main result of 
I mean, I, I really think that Ahmadinejad, he plays stupid or what, but he should really send big thanks to the United States, like, thank you for getting rid of our enemy Saddam and on delivering us Iran, Iraq to us, to our influence. You know, these are the things that are really going on. Friends from Iran told me that the immense investments of Iran in Iraq recently, especially in the Shia part and so on, so, uh, you, but you see my point here. My point is that the answer is not liberalism versus fundamentalism, who is the good guy. Of course, we should fight also these battles in the same way as, for example, if there is illness. And you can clearly see a social causality of this illness because of some poison, po po uh, poison in the air, whatever. Of course. The solution is not the stupid Marxist one, pseudo-Marxist, where you say, oh, we must fight the true causes, let the people drop dead there, we will solve. No, you should also do the medical stuff, help the people. In the same sense, of course, when there is sexism and all that, we should make strategic pacts with liberals and so on. But our lesson to them, to the liberals, should be that, that, uh, that ultimately they are themselves generating, not they, but the the economic unity whatever the civilization of which they are part they are generating what they are fighting so in order precisely to save what is worth saving in liberalism this would be this is the hegelian aufhebung sublation to save what is worth saving in liberalism we will have to go a step further beyond liberalism in other words we should never forget that this opposition, where one side is the symptom of the other, is the pseudo-opposition. And that, you know, like, the true alternative is not liberalism versus fundamentalism. The true alternative is this entire field versus the authentic left. And here we must be self-critical. The reason why we have all these fundamentalisms is becoming more and more clear how right Walter Benjamin was when he made this famous statement that every fascism is the, is the sign, an indication of a failed revolution. If we accept, I'm very doubtful about this term, but strategically for five minutes, three minutes, if we accept the term Islamofascism, then we should say it also holds for Islamofascism this. They are there because we were not there, because the left, the left failed. So again, you see, my idea, don't accept those terms of the debate, liberalism versus fundamentalism. The solution is a radical, radical third term which breaks this cycle. And now you will say, but what has all this to do with what I was saying about uh, apocalypticism and so on and so on? It's exactly the same. I think that all this uh, nightmarish dreams of are we human, are we not human, will we be robots and so on, are because it's like fundamentalism to liberalism. It's a symptom of what we consider now to be human. The true problem is not will we be humans or, 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 or robots. The true problem is not in a Jungian way to find the right kind of synthesis as some naive people dream, which is precisely the fascist equivalent in, like, you know, we should have some prothesis and so on, but Mostly we should somehow control the process. This is the dream of the church. This is the capital of the well-known pedophilia organization called, uh, called 